0: Good morning. It is so good to see each of you. If you're a guest this morning, it encourages us that you're here. We hope that we can be an encouragement to you. What a wonderful, wonderful campaign that we've had. As James has already said many, many good things about it. It is exciting to think that so many hundreds of you were involved in it and so many thousands were reached. And together with with uh, a united force, the one campaign reached one town, and and we, we faced and owned up to the problem. As mankind, we have one problem, and we offered one solution. And there were eight individuals thus far that were baptized into Christ, also as a result of just the encouragement campaign. There were four of our own that asked for prayers and surely there'll be much more that will come about from the seeds that were sown the past few weeks and the seeds that will continue to be sown for several weeks and months to come. Do be marking on your personal calendar and be thinking about who it is that you could invite and keep in mind if they live anywhere around close they've already been invited once or twice so it'd be a great follow-up to the Revelation seminar. It is a Friday night, Saturday morning, and then it'll conclude Sunday morning during Bible class and worship. And uh, it will be two hours in Friday evening, two hours Saturday morning, and it's July the tenth, the eleventh, and the twelfth. Be planning on that, and uh, and be praying that much good will come from us learning about this wonderful last book in the Holy Canon and be praying for the good that it can do as we reach out and also encourage others to come and be a part of that. It is exciting that the gays are going to come and be a part of our work here. I'm sure some of you will remember them and remember the energy that they bring and the tremendous talent and ability and the passion that they have for God. We are very excited about this. Continue to be prayerful about... Uh, Them specifically, now that you know who it is that's going to be fulfilling that role. And let's pray that their transition will be smooth uh, for them and their move. And that everything will be well for us. And that together we can all work together for God's glory. The minister that is the longest on staff here, Bud Lambert. Uh, Many of you know him well and we love him dearly. His wife is very, very sick. Be praying for him. Be praying for his wife Cindy. Uh, they, are, uh, they really have some heavy burdens right now. And, and many of us know what he has meant to our individual families and especially to our church family. And this is a time that we can reach out with, with uh, prayers and with cards and let's do everything that we can do uh, to hold him up at such a time as this. One month to live. Perhaps all of us have seen the bumper stickers that says something to this effect. He who dies with the most toys wins. How would you like to share a close relationship with someone that that is the high priority in their life? Wouldn't you like for that to be your spouse or your son or daughter or mother or father who places materialism in such a high esteem? I think about the quote that is said by Thomas Kempis as he says, Vanity it is to wish to live long and to be careless to live well. Friends, how have you lived the last week, the last month, the last several months? How much time have you wasted? How many mixed priorities have you had? Wouldn't it be foolish for someone who's wasting time and mixing priorities to then say, Lord, I'd like to live longer. Can you imagine how God must be scratching his head saying, with the way you're wasting your life, why would you ever want to live it longer? It's such a waste. But yet on the other hand, the challenge to this thought of one month to live, the challenge is not to concentrate upon death, but it's to concentrate upon the very fact of how to live. What if we truly did find a life where we had our priorities in order, where we weren't wasting time, we weren't wasting opportunities, but we were finding God's purpose in our life and we were fulfilling it in such a way that we could say, hey, if I only have 30 more days to live, this is the way I would live. Or if I have 30 more years to live, this is the way I would live. Surely most of us would realize that it's not how many toys we have. But what matters the most, not only at the end, but hopefully even right now, what matters the most are our relationships. How's your relationship with God? How's your relationship with His family, the church? How's your relationship with your physical family? How's your relationship with your friends, your co-workers? How is your relationship even with yourself? You see, when we can get all of that in order the way God has designed it to be, then we begin to find out how to live a regret-free life. As we think about relationships this morning, uh, I want to begin with this reminder to realize that the very fact and the definition of relationship is that we share it with another and we can't live the other person's life. And so we're not saying that everything can be perfect in a relationship in the sense that we can control that. But we do control our contribution to that relationship. And so as we study this morning, we're talking about what are you doing in that relationship? What are you doing to love completely? As we think about loving completely, I'd like for you to think about this analogy. I'd like for you to think about an ocean. And you know, it's interesting how many people choose to stay just on the beach. And then there are a few more people that choose to wade out and, and to play in the water. And then there are a few more people that actually get the mask and the fins and the snorkel and they go a little further out in the water. And then there's just a very few that actually become certified in scuba dive. And they go even deeper. But friends, even a scuba diver, they can only go about 130 feet. That would be from this wall to that wall just a little more than twice. See, just a little more than twice the distance of the depth of this room is what a scuba diver can go. But now, let me ask you a question. How vast is the ocean? Really, how much of the ocean do we really, really see when we're just on the beach? Or we're wading waist deep? Or, or we scuba dive and we go 130 feet deep. When we think about the Mariana Trench that's close to, close to Guam, in the North Pacific part of the ocean, it's 36,000 feet deep. That would be almost as deep as it would be from right here to the Nashville airport. Now think about how much of the ocean is unknown. We just don't fathom it. We just don't walk around in it and gather a reality of really what is there and how vast it is. Now I want you to think about God's love. How many of us, as we think about loving completely, how many of us would have to say, you know, I guess I'm just kind of on the beach of God's love. I I, I mean, it's so deep. How deep is it? It's a lot deeper than the ocean. How wide is it? It's wider than the east and the most eastern point that exists and the west, the most western point that exists. It's higher than Mount Everest. It's, It's deeper than the deepest trench in the ocean the text that has been so capably read for us. Look back at that again. Look there at the 17th, 18th, and 19th verse of Ephesians, the third chapter. Notice as we read there, what does God want us to do? Look at the end of 17. That you being rooted and grounded in what? You know, a lot of time we talk about being rooted and grounded in our faith in God, and and that's definitely a scriptural concept. But do you see what God wants us to do here? God wants us to be rooted and grounded in His love. Well, what, what is it that if I'm going to place my roots down deep, what is that love? Where is that love? How grand is that love? Well, let's read this very next verse again. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints, with all the Christians, what is what? The width, the length, the depth. And the height, why? To know the love of Christ. It passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying this prayer on behalf of the brethren at Ephesus. And he says, there's something I want you to have. And keep in mind, this is a a mature righteous church. Paul's not writing to Ephesus because they're getting everything wrong. He's kind of writing to them because they're getting everything right. He's just writing them to encourage doing what they're doing. But in the midst of this, he says, "I've got a prayer for you. I want you to I want you to love, and I want that love to be rooted and grounded in Christ's love. And I want you to know how wide and how deep and how high the love of Christ is, because when we start together that We're starting to put a life together that is what God designed for it to be. And so as we think about one month to live, who is it that would immediately come to your mind, if you knew you only had a month to live, you would say immediately, I want to spend more time with this individual. Who is it in your life that you would go to and say, I need to apologize. If you had one month to live, who is it that you would go to and say, I just want to reassure you of how much you mean to me and how much I love you? Relationships. Where did we learn them? As we mentioned last week, we learned them from our God who is the God of relationships, the Godhead. Let us make man in our own image. It's God who teaches us how to love. And it is in learning this love that contributes to godly relationships is what gives us truly a life worth living. I want to challenge you, if you will, be turning to Matthew, the sixth chapter. As you're turning there, I want to challenge you. Let's live a life so that we can truly say, no more grudges. Now, in one sense, that seems almost impossible. What do you mean, no more grudges? Well, if we're just going to stand on the beach, if you will, going back to that analogy, if we're just going to stand on the beach of God's love, we're going to carry a lot of grudges. We're, we're not going to forgive. If we're just going to go out and wait a little bit, if we're going to snorkel a little bit in God's love, friends, the only way we can do what we're about to study Is whenever we learn it from God because our human nature will never teach us this. Notice a few passages. First, we're going to see the Lord teaching His disciples how to pray. And notice what a part of the prayer is. And immediately after this prayer, notice the follow-up teaching that he gives. We're in Matthew, the 6th chapter. You notice in verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, How would be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Now notice this, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Pause there for just a moment. What did Jesus recognize in this prayer? That we all need forgiveness. And that we need to forgive others in order to have that forgiveness. And so he makes it very clear in the teaching that follows. Now let's read 14 and 15. For if you forgive men, notice the word if there. See, it's conditional. Conditional. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses. If you will, turn to Colossians, the third chapter. In other words, the Lord makes it very clear. He says, he says you see this ocean of love. Within this ocean of love, my love is so great for you, I'll forgive you. It doesn't matter what you've done. You repent, you turn to my Son, I will forgive you. And we say, wow, that's wonderful. I'm so glad he does And He says, if, if you're willing to have that same love toward other people, are you willing to forgive? Then I will forgive. Matter of fact, he says it clearly in the third chapter here of Colossians 3, beginning at verse 12, just to set the stage. We're going to see it a little later in 13 and 14 where we learn this. Look at verse 12. Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, and he tells some things we ought to put on. And the language here is just like changing clothes or changing a jacket. I'm going to take off some sinful things and I'm going to put on these things. Put on tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, See, now that goes right along with not holding a grudge, doesn't it? I'm going to be willing to suffer long with someone. We'll come back to that in a minute. Bearing with one another, that goes right along with not holding a grudge. Forgiving one another. Now he says, if anyone has a complaint against another, why? Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Now, notice the word perfection there is complete. He says, have love that is complete. Put on this bond in your life. There is something that yokes you with other people. What is it? It's this bond that is perfect or complete love. Lord, what is it that we do in this perfect or complete love? He lists several things there. But one of the things he lists there is he says, you're going to forgive. Why? Because Christ taught us to forgive. Again, note the fact we do not do this because it's our human nature. We don't even forgive because we have forgotten about it. Please note, forgiveness and forgetting is not the same thing. We do not forgive because it feels real good to do it at the moment. Forgiveness is not linked to emotion. We forgive because Christ has forgiven us and taught us that we can do that. We may still remember. We may still hurt. That's why He said, suffer long here. We may still be suffering as we forgive. You've heard me say it before, but allow me to say it again. It is always interesting how our human nature comes in and deals with us deceptively Sometime, as someone that has been really hurt deeply says, I tell you what, I could never forgive them because they hurt me. And you know, if you're not the person involved in that, you you kind of drop back and you say, do what? You can't forgive them because they hurt? That's the only people you can forgive. You don't forgive people that do good things to you. You don't forgive people that have been kind to you. You forgive people that have hurt you. That's the very aspect the definition the characteristic of forgiveness and so will you agree this morning will you agree with the fact that you want to live every day of your life as if you only had a month to live and so what that means is you're going to do what Christ has taught you to do and when it hurts so desperately you're still going to forgive you're going to suffer long and forgive Notice how he ties this into Ephesians, the fourth chapter. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Paul teaches us something significant about not hanging on to a grudge that would lead to us not being willing to forgive. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Perhaps we could stretch this out literally and say, the Lord doesn't want us to harbor anger more than 24 hours. If you're not going to stay up all night long uh, and you're going to begin the day at sunrise, maybe we even say the Lord doesn't want us to harbor anger more than 12 to 16 hours. The point is, the longer we harbor anger, the more we are literally constructing a place for Satan to dwell. In other words, the longer I allow anger to churn within me without resolving it within myself, one has wisely said, When one forgives, a prisoner is released, and that prisoner is you. Friends, once we decide within ourselves, I'm not going to hold that person accountable for that, In in the sense, vengeance is not mine. I'm not going to strike back at them. Now, the end of Romans 12, beginning of Romans 13, if there's something that needs to be done, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then, if it is a crime, we have Romans the 13th chapter. That's why God ordained governments. He counts them to be a minister of hymns to punish those who do wrong. And so it's not that everybody ought to get away with everything, but the point is, we don't carry out the old Wild West mentality that I'm going to strike back and I'm going to settle up all of the cases myself. Why? Because that's just not a good way to live. If you had 30 days to live, wouldn't you want to go by someone's house, to make a phone call, to make sure that you've done your part to live peaceful with all men wherein that it lies within you? Have you done your part to make sure that there's no grudges, but instead to be forgiving? But a second thing that I would challenge you to think about, and that is no more valleys. If you'd like to be turning to Romans, the 15th chapter. But before we get there, I'd like for you to think about relationships obviously are not easy. And if I were to ask you to rate your relationships right now, individual relationships... And say, hey, is this relationship really excellent? Or is this relationship just fair right now? Or is this relationship really a burden or in danger of absolutely dissolving right now? And you think about your various relationships and where are they? The ones that need help. You know, there's probably three things that are in common with all of your relationships that need help. One is a mountain. In other words, these are things that are standing tall, they're in the way. If we could level these down, we could better be united. One is a mountain of misunderstanding. Have you ever noticed that when a couple gets married, they oftentimes feel like they share all the same opinions All the same goals and dreams in life. They seem to be able to converse about anything they want to converse about. And then they go on a honeymoon and when they get back, they don't understand each other. All of a sudden, they don't have the same opinions anymore. They don't have the same dreams anymore. And I know that's an exaggeration there, but but the reality is it's very similar a lot of time when people go in Partnerships. They share in a partnership of a business and, and they plan to go in partnership because we have the same approach to business. We have the same dreams in our business. We have the same opinions about things until they've been in business for about six months and then a lot of the time they're ready to pull their hair out because how am I going to remain in business with this person? We don't do business the same. We don't have the same expectations. We don't have the same dreams. We don't spend our money the same. And, and there's a lot of problems even sometime in friendships among co-workers. Well, what's the problem? One of the key problems is we don't understand each other. A second key mountain that, that oftentimes comes into play is the me first syndrome. Oh, we learn it as children when, when another toddler comes along and starts playing with our toys and we grab it and say mine. We learn it as, as preteens and teenagers whenever we run towards the car and we yell shotgun. That's just another way of saying... I want the best seat. Everybody else gets the worst seat. Oh, we learn it as men when we say, Hey, hand me the remote. I'm more important here. I'm going to control what we see. Friends, it gets real serious when it bleeds over into relationships where we literally say by our actions and our words, I'm more important than you. Try that with a coworker and see how long your relationship stays strong. Act to your friends that you're more important than them and see how long you have close friendships. See how long you can stay close to God believing that you're more important and your will is more important than God's will. The me first is a mountain that destroys marriages, good parents, good work relationships and any other relationship that exists. But then there's a third mountain that we see in so many relationships that are hurting and that is the mountain of mistakes. You know, one of the lessons that Bud Lambert has taught many of us, and, and hopefully, even though it's so simple, it's helped many of us. And that is, for example, if you're in marriage, you're an imperfect person married to an imperfect person. Do you realize that everybody you share a relationship with is imperfect? And as they share that relationship with you, they're sharing a relationship with someone who's imperfect. Now, isn't that interesting that we are aware of that, but yet we become so frustrated when they make a mistake? Why is it if you know that your children are imperfect, why does it frustrate you so much when they make a mistake? If you know your spouse is imperfect, why does it frustrate you that they make a mistake? If you know your coworkers are imperfect, why does it frustrate you that they make a mistake? Well, now we're back to mountain two. Because it's me first. I don't want to be burdened with your problems. I want you to be perfect so you can serve me in a perfect way and make my life easy. That brings us back to mountain one. I just don't understand. Why are relationships like this? Why are they so hard? I don't understand what happened to the good times that we used to have in this company. I don't understand what happened to the good times we used to have in this family or this marriage. I don't understand what happened to the good times that we we had in this friendship. Friends, almost always, it's one of these three mountains And it's not that this one passage can solve it all, but this one passage gives us a keen insight. Notice, if you will, Romans the 15th chapter. Look at Romans the 15th chapter and notice what he says. We're going to read 5 and 6 to set the stage, but what we're looking for is the first of 7, but I wanted us to get this picture here of 5 and 6. And may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? He's a God of patience and comfort and says, I want you to have that mind toward other people. Are you patient toward others? Do you try to bring comfort in other people's life? Verse 6, that you may... With one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What if we all are on the same page, going in the same direction? We have one mind. It's the mind of God. It's the mind of Christ. We speak of one mouth. It's the mouth of the truth of Christ. Here's what he wants us to do in 7. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Some translations say, accept one another. Let that sink in for a minute. What does God want you to do in the relationships that you share with your family, your church family, with the people you work with? God, what do you want me to do? He says, I want you to accept one another. Receive one another. God, do you know their mistakes? Do you know how I'm up to here with the fact of their weaknesses? Can you imagine God looking down and saying, Hey, I said receive them like Christ has received you. Do you know your mistakes? Do you know your weaknesses? And did He not receive you anyway? Friends, as we think about this mountain of misunderstanding, what if instead we say, I want to have a mountain of acceptance. I want to accept you for the way God made you. God made you with weaknesses and with strengths. And I want to benefit in our friendship from your strengths. And I want to serve you in your weaknesses. I hesitate to use a personal example here. But this literally happened while I was typing this point on this sermon. I'm typing this point at this point in it. And my phone rings. It's my son Colton. He's very frustrated. And just so we'll set the stage here Colton and I are cut out of totally two different cloths. We're not alike. We've always gotten along very well, but we're not alike. He's very frustrated and he says, Dad, I said, Yeah, I did it again. I said, Colton, you didn't. He said, yeah, I'm about 20 or 30 miles west of Memphis. I'm at a gas station and my keys are locked up in my truck. I said, Colton, now think about it. I'm thinking about this lesson. I'm thinking about how we are so different. I may lock my keys up in my car today, but that's not one of my typical weaknesses. You know what I'm saying? He can do it pretty frequently. Now the question is, is it my job? Is it my place in this relationship? And it doesn't matter if it's parent or child or spouse or friend. Is it my place to change him? How many people have you ever changed? (laughs) How many of you spent a lifetime trying to change? You're not going to change anybody. God can change someone. That someone in God can change them. But you're not going to change them. Not once they reach adulthood. You're not changing them. And so I immediately had to start fighting back all of these thoughts that are just darting through my mind. You know, those thoughts like, Colton, when we went through this 10 days ago, you were supposed to go get a key and a -a hide-a-box and put it under the bumper somewhere? You know, all of this stuff is shooting through my mind. And instead, I immediately started thinking, I want to try to understand what he's going through. I said, okay, let me guess. You started locking your truck now that you have a Garmin because you're afraid it's going to get stolen. Yeah, I never locked my truck before. I'm starting to understand that. And because your truck is old and the buzzer doesn't work anymore letting you know the key's left there, it's easy to forget, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's easy to forget. I've done it twice lately. You know, fast forward a few minutes. He says, hey, Dad, wait a minute. I just noticed across the road is a used car dealer. I just noticed that he has a 95 Suburban sitting on his lot And as old as my locks are, there's a good chance his key will fit my truck. Let me hang up. I'll call you back in a few minutes. As he's crossing the street back, he calls again. He says, okay, we're on our way. We're on our way. The key is in. No, no. Yes, I'm in. Now, I tell you all that to say this. Was his soul in jeopardy? If he locks his key up in his truck every week, is his soul in jeopardy? No. What's my job as a father? To a grown child. What's my job as a father to a grown child? Accept the way God made him. Try to understand him. And practice loving actions. Instead of rudely hanging up the phone, I'm already, as I did a week ago, Googling, trying to find the closest locksmith. And then... Be aware of what? My wife and I gave birth to imperfect children. And all three of those children have imperfect parents. And the longer and the more we can understand and serve each other's weaknesses, the stronger our relationships will be. Friends, I have in my pocket, and we got to close this lesson, so I'm not going to take the time to read it. I have in my pocket a letter from a lady that is... A lot of hours from here. She wrote after a seminar. And in this letter she says, I've been married 12 years. And my husband has only admitted that he was wrong 5 times. And with each time he apologized, those 5 times in 12 years, he finished the apology with saying, but, to discredit everything that he was apologizing for. Friends, this morning, I want you to realize that we're going to have to accept each other. And that means we accept each other with strengths and weaknesses. And it means we also realize we have strengths and we have weaknesses. And if you want to build strong relationships, if you haven't said, I'm sorry this past week or two for something to somebody, I can tell you this you haven't lived perfectly the last week or two. So then you've got to ask yourself the question why am I having such a hang up with my mistakes? Why am I trying to act like I don't make them? Because when we do that, we're just building barriers in relationships between others. So this morning, what is it that you can do? If you had 30 days to live, what relationships would you strengthen? What would you do to make sure, let's take away those mountains. Let's, let's fill in the valleys and let's be united with each other. Let's accept each other and serve each other. Let's make sure that we're always willing to forgive. And the greatest forgiveness that's ever offered is the forgiveness that God offers us as His Son hung up on the cross. We don't deserve it. We've made a lot of mistakes. We don't deserve it. But that's why it's grace. If you want to be baptized into Christ or if you strayed from Him and want to return back to Him, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.